The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. There are many swords throughout history that are legendary. So you think about Excalibur, the sword and the stone that King Arthur pulled out of the stone and you know, was then the king because he could he could pull that sword out. So you think of Excalibur, but that, there's others that are more mythical, but there are some that have legendary status, but they actually have some anchor in history. And some of them you can actually still see in museums around the world. So for starters, there is a sword called the Sword of Gujian. It is a, a sword that is in a museum in uh, China. I think we have a picture of that. You can go ahead and pull that up. Yeah, here it is. And this sword goes all the way back to about 500 years BC. So this is like a 2,500 year old sword. And it was led by a military leader who was, uh, their, the, their kingdom had been taken away from them, but under his reign, wielding this sword, he won back his kingdom and their freedom. But here's what's so crazy about this sword. They found this uh, king's tomb in the 1960s. So this was already almost 2,500 years old when they found it, and the crypt had been overrun by this river, constantly washing water over this tomb. But when they found the sword, mysteriously, it had not been corrupted at all. Sword was made of copper and tin. It had not been oxidized, it hadn't been corroded, And apparently, according to scientists and archaeologists, to their shock and bewilderment, it was in pristine condition, and they couldn't even understand why. And apparently, it's still as sharp today as the day it was forged. Mysterious. You can go see that in in a museum in in China. But there's another sword. If you fast forward um, into around 800 AD, the Emperor Charlemagne had a famous sword. Joyeuse is the name of the sword. And this you can actually see in the Louvre. There's a, they've, they've kept this in the Louvre. We've got a picture of this as well. You can go ahead and pull up that picture. And apparently uh, the, the legend behind this sword is right there in the pummel of the handle they apparently, the blacksmith forged into that pieces of wood from the, uh, allegedly, from the actual spear that pierced the side of Christ. And so they put pieces of that wood in the pommel of that sword, and the legend went that whenever he wielded that sword, Charlemagne, he, or, or whoever did, would be stronger, would be braver, and would be immune to poison. Like it was, it gave them like basically superhuman strength. Apparently, the color of the sword would change um, all the time. It was just this um, apparently mythical sword. Surprisingly, it doesn't change colors today. It's just the same color in the Louvre. Don't know what that means. But that is Joyeuse from Charlemagne. Another sword is uh, Tisson. This is a sword. This is about two to 300 years later. This is the, the famous knight from Spain, El Cid. 
And this sword you can see in a museum in Spain. Apparently this sword, when he would take it on the battlefield, its, uh, its name means literally firebrand, like when it's in the furnace and it's white hot. And he would take Tison out onto the battlefield and it would be a blisteringly bright light. And when he would raise it in the air, this light would just shine out onto the battlefield and the enemies would see it and they would just run away. They would flee in terror just as he wielded this sword. The fourth sword is um, actually, we, it's been lost to history, but it's been well documented, but it's the sword of St. Catherine. Um, that's actually um, Joan of Arc. She wielded the sword of St. Catherine. It's called that because Joan of Arc said, uh, as the legend goes, she heard a voice from heaven, maybe even the voice of God. And when she was beginning her, her quest, she heard the voice of God say that in the shrine of St. Catherine, behind the altar, there was hidden a sword. And she sent a message to the priests there at the shrine of St. Catherine. And they dug up, and sure enough, they found a rusty sword that they cleaned up and emblazoned on it was five crosses. And she carried this sword that was a gift to her from God himself. And whenever she held the sword, she had success. But one day the sword was broken and she no longer used it. And from that day forward, as the legend goes, like all of her success changed and she was overcome and defeated. Now, these swords that have some historical value um, are legendary. You know, probably so much of this is the legend has grown Probably a lot of it is propaganda from that day, trying to strike fear into the enemies of those who wielded these swords. But I just want you to stay with me for a moment, and I want to imagine that you were one of these individuals, and you were given this quest, and that you were given some powerful legendary sword that you were to take out on the battlefield. Maybe it was a sword that, you know, was incorruptible. Maybe it was a sword that would be a blistering white light or make you strong and courageous and immune to poison or whatever it was, you were given this incredible, legendary, powerful, miraculous sword. And you're like, wow, I can't believe I'm honored to get this sword. And you put it back in its sheath and you put it up on the, uh, on the maybe on the bedside table and in your, in your room and you go to bed that night. And the next day is the day of battle and you go riding out into battle on your steed and you go riding in front of all of the, those who are armed and ready for battle. And you go to take this, this mythical sword, legendary powerful sword and raise it into the air and oh man, I left it back in my room. Actually, I don't even know where it is. I mean, it was what a gift it was. I lost it, and that, that stinks. I don't think any one of us would do that. I mean, if we were given a sword of that, <laughs> that kind of gift, you'd probably be like, wow, I, I have to steward such a gift. I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna figure out how to use this sword. I'm gonna practice with this sword. I'm gonna probably take it with you wherever you go because you don't want it to... You know, you don't want it to ever not be ready. Now that sounds like a crazy, like hypothetical, but reality for your life and my life as a believer is actually far more incredible than that hypothetical situation that we just spoke about. See, we're told we're actually in a very real battle. And we're told that we're given armor 
And I want to share, as we've been going through this series, we've been talking about the various pieces of armor, and I want to share with you the last piece of armor we're told that we're given. And when you hear about this piece of armor, it makes all of those legendary, mythological, wondrous swords seem like a letter opener. I want you to see what Ephesians chapter 6 says. Would you open in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6? We're going to take a look at verse 11. And if you've been journeying with us in this series, um, this is a little bit of a review. We're in part 7 of our series. We're going to be wrapping wrapping it up next week. If you uh, have missed some parts along the way, or if you're just now joining us, you can get all the rest of the pieces of the series um, on the CityRev app or online. Um, You can get caught up, but we're going to just jump in. Let's look at Ephesians 6. We're going to look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Here's basically the big idea of this passage, this text, is it says that we are in a battle. We are in a spiritual battle. Now, we all feel battles. Maybe you are going through a battle at work right now. Maybe you say, like, I have a battle with my boss, or I have a battle with my coworker, or I have a battle if I'm even in the right career or working for the right company. Maybe you have a career battle right now, or maybe it's just the doldrums of just not feeling like you have purpose. You have maybe a battle at, at your job or a battle at school, or maybe you have a relational battle, a battle with one of your kids, or maybe it's a marital battle or a financial battle or a health battle, or maybe you just look at the culture and you say, there's battles in our culture, and you feel the weight of those things. But this text says there is really one actually real battle. It says we do not actually battle against flesh and blood. And that's really hard to believe because it really, really feels like we're actually battling other people. In fact, we read that and then just kind of wake up on Monday and sometimes forget it and still think that the people are the ones we're battling. But it says, no, we're actually not battling flesh and blood. There is a spiritual battle going on. There are rulers and authorities and principalities as the phrases it uses. In other words, there is a real being, a creature known as the devil. It goes by various names in the scripture, but there is an enemy with demons. There are angels that are the servants and messengers of God. There is a very real spiritual battle. It's behind the scenes and affecting every other battle on planet Earth. That is the real battle. And amazingly, we're not just made aware of it. We're told that we are actually being brought into it. And actually, we are actually um, being attacked by that battle. And so he says, put on the armor of God because the enemy has schemes that he is working against each one of us. There are schemes that are after you and after me. There are schemes that are after your spouse. There are schemes that are after your children and your grandchildren. There are schemes that are after us. And so we have to put on the armor of God. So he's been working through these various pieces of armor of God. He says, put on the belt of truth. Why do we put on the belt of truth? Because our enemy is a liar. And he's these swirling, seductive lies that are just so easy to fall for. Adam and Eve fell for them, and we fall for them 
often as well. And so we have to be girded with truth. We have to be grounded to truth. He's put on the breastplate of righteousness. Why? There's a scheme that the devil's trying to get at us. He's trying to tempt us to fall. He's the tempter. He's trying to make us sin, and sin destroys us. He's trying to make sin look good, but it's a trap. He says, put on the, the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. He wants us to get so wrapped up with the things of this world and the things that the world says that we should pursue, that we get so wrapped up in those things that we live fruitless, purposeless, empty lives. But he says, so put on the shoes of the readiness of your mission to further the kingdom of God. That's really why you're here, and that's really what's going to matter for eternity. He says, so be ready, because that's part of the scheme of, of the devil. He says, take up a shield of faith. Why? Because, man, things are going to come in your life, and it's going to make you doubt. He's going to want you to doubt. And even though God told you that there's going to be difficult times, Jesus said that. There's going to be hard times. And it's going to stretch our faith. Man, there's the scheme of the devil to make you really doubt, so have a shield of faith. He says, put on a helmet of salvation. Because you know one of the names of the devil? He's an accuser. And he'll have to whisper in your ear, making you feel like all of your mistakes and all of your past, not just to make you feel guilty, but to make you feel like it's on you and to make you feel shame. I mean, these are all the tactics of the, he's got schemes. And so we have to have the armor of God so we can withstand the schemes of the devil. And then we get to the last piece of armor. Jump down to verse 17. Uh, here's, here's what he says. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. He's gone through all the pieces. You've got a breastplate, a belt, a helmet, a shield. You've got the, the shoes. You've got all the various pieces. And he says the last one he talks about is a sword. Now, there's a couple different uh, ancient Greek words for sword that are used in the, in the uh, New Testament. One is a, um, the Greek word used for a large, like, two-handed sword. There were some cultures and warriors that would have a large two-handed sword that they would just cle try to cleave their enemy with. There's other types of sword that are like one-handed sword. They're smaller, okay? So you'd have a shield, and you could just wield that one-handed smaller sword. The Roman version of that one-handed sword was, um, was a gladius. It would, it would have a, a uh, sharp edge on both sides and really pointy at the end. And uh, there's a copus, which is the Greek version of that. It was a little bit curved with a sharp edge on one side. There were shorter swords. Um, even some versions were seemed like larger daggers, but it's a one-handed sword. That is the word that's used for, in, in this text. It's referring to a smaller sword that you can wield. And so because of that, it is both defensive you're defending against attacks, but then you're quickly going on the offensive with this particular weapon. What makes this interesting is this is the first part of the armor that is an offensive part of the armor. Most of it is about withstanding. This one is also not only about withstanding and defending, it is also about attacking. It's an offensive piece of the armor. Now he says the sword of the spirit, and he's very clear, the sword of the spirit, which is, like, what does he mean? Like, what is our attack? 
Is it my brilliance? Like, I'm just so smart that I attack back, you know? No, thank goodness, it's not that. That's not what it is. You're not reliant on your brilliance. It's not your experience. It's not your maturity. You know, it's not your, your piety. It's none of those things. Your weapon is the word of God. Well, what is the word of God? It's, it's right here. It's the Bible. It's interesting how many times God says in the Bible, his words, the metaphor is, his words are coming out of his mouth like a sharp sword. Interesting, in Revelation, when Jesus returns, he's depicted as a warrior on a steed, and his words coming out of his mouth are like a, sword, are like a sword. Interestingly, that time it's talking about a sword, it's the two-handed version. The words coming out of the mouth of God is like a sword. Now think of what comes out of the mouth of God. When God speaks, things burst into existence. That's how the universe was made. He speaks light and it is invented. Everything is invented by the word of God. It's never a suggestion. The word of God is that powerful. So how specifically does the Bible say anything else about how it's like a sword? Listen to what it says in, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Let me just read this to you. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, the word of God is so sharp, it cleaves into us. It pierces into us. It's never going to have a glancing blow. It never just delivers a flesh wound. It cleaves right into the soul, seeing things about us that we don't even know about ourselves. It's revealing thoughts and intentions and impulses that are so deeply hidden in our hearts, deeply covered and rationalized to, our, to ourselves, but the word of God can slice right deeply into it. Why? Because it's from the same being that's holding our molecules together. There is no place that the word of God cannot get to. That's what the sword is like. That's what the word of God is like. Well, okay, um, yeah, I know, the Bible is, it's like that book that's full of all these like antiquated rules and, you know, things that you're supposed to do, like, you know, it tells me how to live. That, the, sometimes the challenge is we actually don't know what this book is about. But the book says what it's about. Here's what Jesus said. There was this moment when Jesus had died on the cross already and he had been defeating sin and then rose again, defeating death. And now as a risen, uh, our risen Lord, he was walking around meeting with his disciples. And two of his disciples, he's walking with them. They're traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus and he's walking along with them. It's a few hour walk. And as he's walking with them, it says 
he began to open scripture to them. And it says he started all the way at the beginning. And here's what he said. I mean, can you imagine going on a two to three hour walk with Jesus and him giving you a biblical tutorial, an overview of the Bible starting in Genesis? I'm a little jealous of those two guys. That'd be, that'd be something. And he tells us what he said to them. Not as much as I wish it would. But it says, and beginning with the first books of the Bible, he showed them how all of the scripture pointed to him. You know what this book is about? Please don't misunderstand. This book is not, here's some rules on how you can get God to bless you. This is not, here's some tips for how to live like a little bit more of a successful good life. It's not what this book is. This book is not like, hey, you want to get to heaven? Here's the code for how you get to heaven. What this book is about cover to cover is it's revealing Jesus Christ. Starting from the very beginning, it shows how desperate we are for a sacrifice to pay for our sins. It shows us how desperate we are for someone to deliver us from our enemies, how desperate we are for a savior, how desperate we are for a king who will rule justly for all times, how desperate we are for a Messiah. And it's preparing us all for how desperate we are till we get to this point where we are so desperate. When will the Messiah come? And then the whole New Testament points back. This is why he was the once for all sacrifice paying for our sins. This is why he was the deliverer that saves us from the tyranny of our sin and from death. This is why he's our savior that will save us for heaven. This is why he is our king that reigns for all time and his name is above every name. This is why he is the one, the Messiah that was promised. His name is Jesus. Jesus and their salvation under no other name. The Bible, cover to cover, it's about Jesus. And here's the core message of this book. The core message is you cannot save yourself, but God loves you so much that Jesus, the hero, saved you. And he washed you clean and then made you a new creation. He placed the Holy Spirit inside of you, and now he's making you. We were, we were made in the image of God, and that was corrupted by sin. Now he's made you a new creation, and he's making you into the image of Jesus Christ. It's good news, right, right church? It's making us into the image of Christ. That's what this message is about. Yeah, but there's stuff that tells us how to live. What it says is this. It says, this is who you are. You are a new creation, a child of God, an heir of heaven. That is who you are. So don't live like you are your old self that's dead and buried with Jesus. You're a new self that's risen. So live according to that new reality of who you've de been declared to be. He says that that's what's contained in this book. It says this is a sword and it cuts right to the middle of who we are, discerning those details. But there's something else in here that you cannot miss that is absolutely profound. It says, it doesn't just say, and the sword, which is the word of God. It doesn't just say that, does it? 
It says the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is involved in all of the different parts of the armor, but there's something unique about his relationship to this particular piece of the armor. When it comes to the Word of God, the Scripture, the Bible, did you notice what it said? It said something crazy in Hebrews when we read that passage in chapter 4 just a minute ago. It says it's living and active. How is this book living and active? It's because the Holy Spirit is using these words, leaping them off, off the page and working them into our lives where it becomes confusing. Am I reading the book or is the book reading me? There is a unique relationship with the word of God that it's, am I the one actually using this sword? No, it's actually the spirit. When I take up the sword, the spirit is actually using the sword. And he's not only using it on my enemies, he's actually using it to do surgery on me. This is what the, the Bible says about how God uses the sword. This is Isaiah 55. Look at this, verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. He says, I've successfully, God says, I've successfully watered the earth when and where I've wanted to. And it's always accomplishes exactly my purpose. And in the same way, when my word goes forth, it always accomplishes my purpose. God's like, I never miss. If you've um, been a Christian for a few months, maybe even a few weeks, but certainly if you've been a Christian for years and decades, you've experienced a hint and how the Holy Spirit takes a hold of that sword. It happens when you're not expecting it and you're wrestling with something and you're praying and you just open your Bible to the next chapter in your reading plan and you read it and are stunned that that's exactly what you were just wrestling with. And it's like, you can't explain it to anybody if you, you're not, you know that if you tried to call the Miami Herald, they'd be like, that doesn't sound that impressive. But you and the intimacy of your own relationship with God know that you just witnessed a miracle. You've experienced that, right, Christians? It's that moment. It's that moment when you, uh, it's that moment when you go to church and um, you leave like, someone listening to my conversations earlier this week? This is uncomfortable. It's like he promises to do that. Don't be surprised. You go to a small group or your friend. Have you ever had this happen? A friend texts you a verse. Hey, man, I was thinking about you. I just wanted to send you this verse. And you're reading your phone and you start crying and it's awkward because you're like in Publix or something. And it's like, I can't describe this to anyone else, but in the intimacy of my relationship with God, I just witnessed a miracle. The Holy Spirit just took a hold of the word and he just pierced me down into my soul. Do you know what he's doing? 
He's just giving you a little window at what he's always doing with the word of God in your life. It's not just... It's not just the, 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 the word of God, the Bible. It's not just the sword that he sometimes uses. It's the sword of the spirit that he takes up and wields in your life on your behalf all the time. He never misses. Here's what it says. It says, we take up these um, weapons to withstand the schemes of the devil. How does this sword help us withstand the schemes of the devil? Well, the, the Bible tells us one of the names for the enemy is he, or the descriptions of the, of the enemy is that he masquerades as an angel of light. The enemy is not stupid. He's not all powerful. He's limited and he's defeated, but he's crafty. And when he says things and whispers things into our lives, they usually sound right. So what we need is the word of God cleaving through the enemy and getting right to the truth. It's our weapon. And we see one of the most brilliant examples of this is this is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus had, he was about 30 years old before his ministry went public. He was, he 30 years old was these quiet years of Jesus. We don't know very much about what happened in those years, only a couple things. And maybe one day in heaven, we'll find out more. But at 30 years, he shows up to someone that everybody knew about, John the Baptist. And he shows up to be baptized by John the Baptist. And at that point, the whole purpose of John the Baptist was not, to, not about him, not about John the Baptist, not pointing to himself. He was just to be a signpost to when the Messiah arrived. And one day he sees a carpenter from a small town that no one knew much about Nazareth, this small backwoods town. This carpenter shows up and he stops everyone and says, that's the Lamb of God. That's the sacrifice that we're waiting for. And they all look, they all know who John is. They don't know who Jesus is. And Jesus says, I'm here to be baptized. And John says, uh, you should baptize me. Why am I baptizing you? And so he baptizes Jesus. And at that point, a voice comes from heaven saying, this is my son. And the Holy Spirit comes down upon him in this incredible moment. And then God says, okay, next step, I'm leading you into the wilderness. And he walked around. Jesus wandered in the wilderness for 40 days. And, the, and God had directed him to fast for 40 days. And at the end of 40 days, it says he hadn't eaten anything and he was hungry, which is a little bit of an understatement, I think. I'm hungry after 40 minutes, okay? Like 40 days is a long time. And you can imagine walking through the wilderness and seeing these round stones because, you know, over there they have that round, we call it pita bread, you know, but the pita that we get here, you know, it's kind of like, you know, kind of hard and crusty. Man, if you ever have pita there in Israel, it's fluffy. It's like naan. If you've ever had naan bread, it's just fluffy and tasty. And you, you can imagine just looking at those rocks, his mind, his hungry body playing tricks on him. And just then, who do you think arrives? The devil slithering into Jesus' presence and hissing into his ear. And he says, I mean, if you're the son of God, then just turn these stones into bread. I mean, flex a little bit, Jesus. Aren't you 
God's son? Doesn't he care about you? He's a father. He doesn't want you to be in pain. Show off a little bit. You have that kind of power, that kind of freedom, that kind of authority. And Jesus says simply, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Quotes Deuteronomy. Interestingly, a book that was being written as Israel was wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. And the devil says, okay. And he takes him and he flashes before him all the kingdoms of heaven. Oh, the kingdoms of earth, excuse me. Egypt, Rome, Greece, the Far East, all around. He says, I'll give all of this to you. Just worship me and serve me and just, I'll make it easy. Just spend the day and I'll give all of this to you. He knew Jesus' destiny. He's giving him an easier way. And Jesus simply said, it is written, shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Also out of Deuteronomy. And then he takes him to the pinnacle, the highest point of the temple, long way down, to the, down into the Kidron Valley. And he says, just throw yourself off because this is what's written, Jesus. Doesn't it say in Psalm 91 that he'll command his angels concerning you, that he won't let you dash even your foot against the stone? I mean, that's what the Bible says. Jesus, if we're going to talk what's written, I can play that game. Here's what Psalm 91 says. And Jesus at that point looks into his eyes. I think he just stared fire and said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And I think what he's saying is, I'm not going to test God the Father and you're done testing me, God the Son. And Satan fled for another opportune time. Jesus could have commanded all the legions of angels to his side to defeat the devil. But you know what he did? He just unsheathed a sword. And with three slashes, cut down the devil himself. He just used the words of God. Imagine you were given a sword. The same weapon Jesus chose to use. Imagine you were given a sword, and let's just say it had incredible power. Like, let's say it was incorruptible. It never oxidized, it never rusted. The edge from the moment it was spoken has never dulled to the slightest, miraculously. Let's say that that sword, it didn't just hold little bits of the story of Jesus, it contained all the revelation of who Jesus was and it made you it swelled your courage and your strength. It, made, it, it also made you impervious to the poisons that the devil tries to shoot at you. Let's say that the sword would shine a bright, blistering light in the darkest corners that the enemy tries to drag you into. 
And that when you, when you hold up that sword, it sends your enemy to flight. Let's say he's given you a sword, directed you to it by the very words of God, given to you as a special gift for your quest. And if you can imagine that, you're getting just a glimpse of the gift that he's given you, Christian. But here's the reality. You and I have been given this book and we've been given this book and more access to this weapon than any generation of believers in the history of the world. And sometimes we leave it sheathed in our room and go out into the battle that we fight every day unarmed. Take up your sword, Christian. Do you know the stakes of this battle? Take up your sword. Learn your Bible. Know your Bible. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. Memorize your Bible. Pour over your Bible. You say, I don't know how. When has doing hard but important things ever stopped you from learning how to use it? What tool? could be more significant in your life to learn how to use. You read manuals and do tutorials all the time. You learn new apps and you learn new, new things all the time. What could possibly be more significant to learn how to do than study the gift of the very words of God in your life? Here's, you say, well, how do I do it? Here's what the Bible says about itself. I don't want you to hear from me how to do it. What does the Bible say about how to do it? Here's what it says in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers." Here's what so often happens. So often happens is we're planted by other streams that are not leading us to thrive. And then when we come to a point where we need to bear fruit, because there's conflict in our marriage, there's difficulty at work, we've got a big decision in our life, we then pick up the Bible and we kind of thumb through it, trying to figure out what it might say about our circumstance. But that's not how the Bible says it is to be used. The Bible says you should be planted by it like a tree planted by streams, letting it nourish you day and night so that when the season comes to bear fruit, you're thriving spiritually. That is how the Bible is to be used. So often we're planted by other streams. So much we spend hours a day filling our minds with other theories or other ideas. We spend hours a day on YouTube or hours a day in front of the news or hours a day listening to podcasts to help our career or hours a day watching TikTok or hours a day scrolling through social media. And we're planted by those streams. And so our leaves have withered and we're not bearing fruit. We've got to, instead of just doing a little bit of scripture and a lot of other streams, invert it. 
Be planted by streams of water. Read the Bible. Listen to the Bible. Hear biblical teaching. Drink it in. Listen to it on your commute. Listen to it when you exercise. Read it to your family. Read it in your marriage. Study it. Memorize it. Read lots of, read lots of the Bible. Read small portions and dig into it. Journal about it. Ask questions about it. Pray over it. Pray through it. Journal and, and know your Bible. Every day planted by it, nourishing your life so that when the time comes, you are fresh, healthy believer. Here's what else it says. Let's go to the book that Jesus quoted. One more scripture for you, the book of Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now watch what it says. You shall teach them diligently to your, what's the word there? To your children. Teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Please, saturate your life with the scripture. Please, saturate your, your home with the scripture. Saturate your marriage. Saturate your children's life with the, lives with the scripture. May they know no book better May they know no book better, no series of stories better than they know the Bible. You say, how, how, where do I start? Uh, what I want to encourage you to, to write this down if you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to go to cityrev.org slash word habit, cityrev.org slash word habit, or you can go on the CityRev app. It's all there. And what is it? Your church has um, uh, given you all kinds of resources on where to start. There's actually a Bible reading plan, and there's a way to actually, the SOAP method, to actually work through the Bible. There's Bible studies on the app. There's sermons that are archived. There are resources for your children that, of other organizations that we partner with, of videos and books that we recommend. It's all there, saturated at your fingertips. You've been given a sword, and the battle is real. Can we just think for a second, and I want to close with this. Can you think for a second what the stakes are? What are the stakes for, for our city, for our generation? What are the stakes for the next generation, for our children and our students? Can you think of the stakes? There is no other weapon wielded by the power of the Holy Spirit like this one. There is no other, there's no other way to win the battle but to be people that know how to wield the weapon of the word. That's what our generation needs. That's what you need. That's what I need. That's what our children needs. Can we change course be people of the word and watch what God is able to do in our homes, in our lives, in our city, and in our generation. Would you pray with me? God, we believe that you are able to save. We believe that you are able to transform. We believe that you're able to turn the tide in our generation. We believe that you're able to send a sweeping move of the Holy Spirit through our city, through Miami, through Fort, Fort Lauderdale and beyond.
We believe that you're able to send, send a work that we will see in our generation. We believe that you are able to do that. And we believe that you've called us to that mission. And so would you make us a people? Would you find City Rev a people that are taking up their sword, taking up the scripture, people saturated with the word of God, homes saturated by the word of God, marriages saturated by the word of God. Would we have children that are growing up saturated by the word of God, students saturated, filling their minds? Would we have teenagers and young people turning away from the influences of this world and running to their Bibles, drinking deeply, of the pure, nourishing, living waters that God provides? And would we find the words of our Father speaking over us? Here's the message of the Bible to you today. That God loves you and he saved you and Jesus won the battle for your soul. Would you just put your faith in that? The Bible is not telling you how to live a religious life to earn your way to heaven. You can't. That's what the Bible says. It's calling you to surrender to the saving power of Jesus and what he accomplished by his death and resurrection. Would you surrender to that today? Would you put your faith in Jesus and find salvation today? If that's you, I wanna lead you in a prayer right now to surrender to Jesus and find salvation. Just silently pray this to Jesus. Just surrender to him and say, Jesus, I make you my king. Thank you for saving my soul. Thank you for making a way for me to go to heaven. Thank you for making me a new cre creation. I turn from my own old ways and live in light of the new ways that you've created me to live. In Jesus' name, amen. If that was your prayer just then, here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you just put your faith in Jesus, go to cityrev.org slash faith. If you're here, you can go to cityrev.org slash faith. If you're walking on, watching online, just grab your cell phone. We're going to mail you a Bible. If you're here and you put your faith in Jesus just then, that prayer was yours, then just go to the front lobby, that guest services. We're going to give you a Bible. Just say, hey, um, could I have a Bible? I put my faith in Jesus today. And they'll be happy to hand a Bible to you and celebrate with you. Um, so stop Thanks by for listening. Out. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.